Welcome to Texas Fame Law Unfiltered. I'm your host, Justin Jackson, alongside my associate attorney, Myron Kamahara. We're the Jackson Law Firm based in Cedar Park, Texas, just north of Boston. We created the show because there isn't a show about Texas family law that cuts through the BS. We're here to give you the unvarnished truth, the good, bad, and the ugly. But remember, nothing we say is legal advice specific to you. Every case is different. If you would like a free consultation with our office, call us at 512-528-1900 or just visit us on the web at www.thejacksonfirm.com. That's T-H-E jacksonfirm.com. Thanks and hope you enjoy the show. Welcome everybody to another episode of Texas Family Law Unfiltered. This is episode number four and this show is pay me my money. We're talking about spousal support today. Um, I'm here with Myron Kamihara. Myron, let's get started. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Um, spousal support. Very interesting topic here. Uh, it's an award in a divorce of periodic payments from the future income of one spouse for the support of the other spouse. Now, I want to make a distinction, Justin, because spousal support is really rooted in the Texas Family Code Chapter 8. It has certain requirements that must be met in order for a court to award spousal support. Not to be confused from contractual or contracted alimony where the parties can agree and not necessarily have to meet the requirements of chapter eight. Now, going back into the code, we're going to specifically um, specifically concentrate on spousal support of chapter eight and the eligibility requirement. Now, the court may order maintenance for either spouse only if the spouse seeking maintenance will lack sufficient property, including the spouse's separate property on dissolution of the marriage to provide for the spouse's minimum reasonable needs. And the spouse from whom maintenance is requested was convicted of or received deferred adjudication for a criminal offense that also constitutes an act of family violence committed during the marriage against the other spouse or the other spouse's child. And the offenses occurred during the pendency of, of the suit or the divorce normally um, or within two years of the date of filing. Um, I've had a few experiences with this where. Uh, a client will come in and and normally will come in during the pendency. In fact, I can think of one specifically where I had um, where he was uh, he was actually arrested for abuse of the child, which wasn't even his biological child. But he was asking me how the court awarded um, spousal support when. He was married for less than ten years, as we'll see, um, as we'll see as part of one of the requirements. But it's due to this part of the code, which says that you know, fam- family violence, um, if if it's committed and it, the party is found um, to have committed family violence, then the court can award some type of spousal support, even if the child is not necessarily his biological child. Have you had experience in this area as well? Yeah, I think what you're saying is um, domestic violence against the spouse or against the spouse's child. Right. Um, in those scenarios, yes, there have been times when domestic violence uh, creates an eligibility scenario for my client for spousal support. Before we dive too much further into domestic violence, you mentioned some eligibility factors that I wanted to cover because those those threshold factors can be confusing to clients. 
um, one of the threshold factors that you spoke to was um, a lack of sufficient property. Um, do you want to cover that for a moment? Like it, that's an eligibility factor. Uh, sure. Explain sure. that. And, and this, this leads also into um, the sufficient property at the dissolution of marriage, right? I mean, generally speaking, when we have a divorce and we have a party, you would you would split the marital property and whatever the percentage is of that split, one party would get so much of the property. The other party would get so much of the property. Now, lack of sufficient property would be, and and, and this is whether it's community property or separate property. The one spouse that is seeking spousal support has, has little to no property that uh, he or she would receive as a result of the divorce. And the opposite is true as well. I mean, we've talked about this before, where you have a dissolution of marriage and you have a par- two parties that have a pretty big marital estate where they they separate their property and the spouse seeking spousal support is is coming away with, with a lot of the property as a result of divorce. And this goes into one of the considerations that we'll go to that we'll, that we'll review in the future is is what the court looks at uh, as one of the re- considerations, I should say, um, in awarding spousal. Yeah, I think what you're saying is there. The, one of the key eligibility factors is your your client needs to have a lack of property, whether it be cash, stock, some kind of asset that could be turned liquid, a lack of that. And that's one of the threshold factors. On the flip side of that, a client who comes in and has a great deal of property, cash that can be turned liquid, that can essentially do the opposite. It can render that uh, client ineligible. Is that kind of what you're? Yeah, exactly. At? And then you know, the to follow up with that though, the there's a, also an eligibility requirement where the the code says minimum reasonable needs. Right. I mean, these are pretty generalized terminology that can mean a, a few things, but I think you had an interesting point um, about what, in your mind, based off your experience, what is minimum reasonable needs? Yeah, minimum reasonable needs is going to depend on the judge, the county. Uh, we were talking about this before we started the episode that Travis County and Williamson County, uh, as many of our shows go, there's a difference of opinions, generally speaking. Uh, of course, within each county, there's judges that vary, but Generally speaking, Travis County, uh, they're going to view minimum reasonable needs on a higher threshold than I would say Williamson County. I think Williamson County, they would look at, uh, I'll I'll give you a hypothetical on what I mean by that. Um, Let's say that uh, spouse, seeking spouse goes into Travis County and says, I want spousal support. I think that a judge in Travis County is going to look at that and say, your minimum reasonable needs are higher than, for example, a judge in Williams County, like in Travis County, it could be hypothetically um, five or six thousand a month would be minimum reasonable needs. Hypothetically, in Williamson County, minimum reasonable needs could be three to four thousand a month. It just depends on the county and the judge you're dealing with. But I think I'm using those numbers hypothetically just to illustrate that Travis County they p- place a little bit of a higher number. I think, in my experience, in Williamson County. Let's move on. So we already went through the uh, family violence eligibility requirement, but most often, uh, and I think you would agree with me, is that 
you know, the seeking spouse is unable to earn sufficient income to provide for the spouse's minimum reasonable needs. There's that term again, because of an, uh, and, and really it's an incapacitating physical or mental disability that we may come across. Now, um, I've, I've, I've rarely had this come up in my practice, but can you speak to a, a time that you've had a spouse that you represented that had an incapacitating physical or mental disability? Yes. So we've covered just to keep everyone tracked here. We've covered the, the domestic violence angle. Another angle is your client doesn't have property or income to meet their needs, but it's because of their mental or physical disability. That's another factor. That's another element. That's another eligibility issue. And what I've seen is uh, if certainly if your client is significantly VA disabled or Social Security Administration uh, deemed disabled, that can help. That doesn't get you across the finish line. Well, I want to ask you about that. So, and and you, you brought up a good point that it doesn't get you across the finish line because I I've had clients that came in that just because they had or they're collecting SSD or collecting VA benefits that that automatically puts them into this category. Um, but again, like you said, it doesn't get you across the finish line. What else do you need for that? Yeah, it. it uh, I emphasize getting across the finish line. I think it gets you in the door. Um, you know, there's other things that'll help. Certainly a doctor's, um, recommendation, evaluation, diagnosis, um, work limitation type restrictions, anything that a a doctor can attest to, maybe not just a government bureaucracy, but a document where a doctor has said, look, this person cannot sit for this many hours. This person cannot drive. This person cannot work. This person cannot focus. This person has severe chronic pain all day long. Um, you know, it's going to be the outlier, uh, you know, cause we've had clients come in and say, I'm disabled and I, and I, and I respect that it, I'm not, I don't minimize someone's disability in the slightest, but when it comes to defining and applying that disability to the family courts, you have to dissect it and get a little mean at times. And, right. you, and sometimes I don't like the, the answers I give because I have to look at it through the lens that a judge would, sure. which is, is this disability, is it of such a degree that this person actually can't work or if they can work? the only work available to them is such low dollar value that they can't make their minimum needs met. So that's really the threshold there. Right. And I actually misspoke because this is not uh, a common occurrence. The next one is the common occurrence where the marriage was for 10 years or longer and the spouse seeking spousal maintenance um, lacks the ability to earn sufficient income to provide for the spouse's minimum reasonable needs. There's that term again. Um, this is the one that we most often see. And we're looking really for that 10 year mark first, uh, at least when I do the analysis. And then we're looking um, whether that spouse lacks the ability to earn. When, in your practice, when you're, when you're doing a lacks the ability to earn analysis, what is, what is your process or how do you analyze it? The, uh, well, first of all, the 10 years, that's the easiest one to look through. Look sure. at the date of marriage. Yeah. Um, then you look at lacks the ability to earn sufficient income. You want to look at their resume. Um, I- I've had clients that would tell me they've applied for certain jobs. They haven't gotten them. But of course, then we dive in a little further and I find that they have a bachelor's degree, a master's degree. They have all these, this great education background and that maybe the jobs they're applying for are either 
way outside their qualifications, outside the geographic area, or maybe they're just not even applying at all. Right. Uh, but a judge will look at um, the education background of the party. I mean, certainly let's look at the other equation. Let's look at a, a client that doesn't have much education, doesn't have a resume. It's going to be certainly hard for that person to get a high paying job. So that's where the lacks, the ability to earn uh, comes into play. And, and then of course, you'll always find that overarching minimum reasonable needs equation, but we've already covered that. But the question is really just what, what is this person's true capabilities and are they even trying to maximize those? Yeah. It becomes harder too, when you have a client who has been a homemaker for like 20 years, right. And just took care of the kids. Right. And then in a, a divorce is now on the horizon. The last eligibility requirement is when the seeking spouse has to care for a disabled child or, or the code says that um, a child of any age who requires substantial care and personal supervision because of a physical or mental disability that prevents the spouse from earning sufficient income. So this would be this could even be an adult child, uh, technically, where the spouse seeking the spousal support has to is their personal caretaker. And I, I haven't ran too much into these scenarios too in my practice, but uh, I'm sure these exist uh, provided that they're in the code. It does. I mean, one of the nice things about child support is child support can extend to a disabled child indefinitely, but sure. it may not fully address the degree to which a disabled child needs full-time care. Um, there, are, there are clients I've had that, you know, with tears in their eyes, they have truly not been able to work uh, or really do anything except round the clock care for the child because the child requires that level of care. This is what the code is really trying to address. So I will say this, if, if you have a divorce case and you have a disabled child, my experience has been that whether you're in Travis or Williamson County, the court will take care of you. Uh, if there's an ability to, and we'll right. get to that a little bit later, what that really what I'm referring to when I say if there's an ability to, we always have to factor in to any of these analyses what the other party, the paying party makes. Is making correct. Because, you know, I've had clients come in and say, I meet all the things that you've talked about. I'm, you know, I lack the, the ability to earn money. Maybe I have a disabled kid. Maybe I don't. But either way, I meet all the eligibility requirements. What does your spouse make? Uh, just a little more than I do. Well, where's the money going to come from? Yeah. We're going to, you both are going to be fighting the same, uh, battle there. Yeah. Good point. I mean, if, if the spouse that you're seeking spousal support from, um, doesn't have the resources to provide spousal support, then it's really a moot point at that point. Now, I think it's a good moment to talk about multiples. Uh, we were talking about this a little earlier. In my experience, I think it's a safe, easy thing to remember that if your spouse does not make two times what you make, I'm not, and by the way, this will not appear in any code. It doesn't appear, no judge has ever said this, but it's experience. If your spouse does not make at least two times what you make, it's it just becomes increasingly unlikely that a court will award spouses support because the paying spouse needs to have the, the ability to, to pay that. Yeah, yeah. And, and along the same lines, though, what is the... I mean, there's a number we can put on the minimum reasonable needs based off our experience. And what would you say that number is for the seeking spouse? Yeah, I mean, I sort of meant it as a hypothetical, but I'll kind of go back to that example. For Travis County, I would probably put it, 
you're kind of a fence case uh, between five, uh, around 5,000 a month, maybe Mm -hmm. 60K. You're you're on the fence case. Right. Um, Anything lower than that just decreases your ability. I would say Williamson County, you're definitely an on the fence case at about 4,000 a month. I got you. So lower than that, the odds just go down significantly higher, or sorry, go up significantly higher than that. The odds go down significantly. Right. Now, Justin, the the code, the family code has a slew of considerations for the court. And the first one being um, each spouse's ability to provide for that spouse's minimum reasonable needs independently, considering that spouse's financial resources on the dissolution of marriage. Now, we kind of touched on this at the the very top of the show, but at the end of divorce, there's going to be a distribution of marital assets. And... In some cases, certain marriages have done better than others where they, they've accrued a lot, of, a lot of assets. And the division of those assets gives the seeking spouse money and resources post-divorce. Now, what are the chances in your experience when you have a, you have a seeking spouse that is getting, let's say, a million dollars from the dissolution of marriage is based off the division of marital assets. Well, what is the chances for her? Even though the numbers make sense as far as the income uh, ratios go, what what is the chances for her or him to to get uh, spousal support? Certainly the word would be lower. Um, And what really stinks about this conversation, this factor right here frustrates me because, uh, what it's really asking the receiving spouse or the asking spouse, I should say, to do. The spouse seeking spousal support is being asked to use the property they get in the divorce to fund their daily needs. It sucks because, you know, the the spouse on the other side presumably has better income, accumulated probably more of these assets, and is not going to have to use those assets for their daily needs after the divorce. So in a way, you've got one spouse leaving the divorce with uh, retirement funds and the other leaving with the retirement funds, but the court is then asking that spouse to use the retirement funds to pay for their basic daily needs. Right. It's a, it's really a rub uh, that I have with the way judges apply it. Again, you won't see that in any of the items here, except if you key in on that phrase that the court can consider the scout, the spouse's financial resources on dissolution of marriage. I think it's, it's not a terrible idea for the court to consider that. I think it's just a matter of how much, what I've found alarming is uh, if a spouse is going to get a million dollars, I can tend to understand a little bit more that maybe the court wouldn't be as inclined to grant a lot of spousal support. Right. But I've actually seen the number come even far down from that. I've seen courts, whereas my client is getting 300000 or 250000 at times hesitate on the amount or duration of spousal support just because they're going to get 250 to 300 K, which we both know in today's world, unfortunately that might've sounded like a lot 20, 30 years ago. It doesn't sound like a lot anymore. Yeah. And you know what, to a good point is that some of these assets that are distributed to the seeking spouse, they're not liquid, you know what I mean? So they're, they're going to have to sell. And sometimes they might be in the home, you know, in the marital home. And they're a lot of times not tax affected. Exactly. So you got a 401k, you know, I got clients go, well, I'm gonna, I got 250k in the 401k. That'll be good for a while. Well, have you factored in your taxes? Right. And, you know, and it, and it's, it's super important to get a little bit tax educated before you get into your divorce on what your asset actually is worth mm-hmm. after you do taxes, mm-hmm. because you could get the wrong sense on what you really have. Right. There's a second um, consideration, right? And this goes towards, 
mostly towards the um the seeking spouse but and, and you touched on this um with your your request for a resume but the education and employment skills of the scout mm-hmm. of the spouse right and the time necessary to acquire sufficient education or training to enable the spouse seeking maintenance to earn sufficient income and the availability and feasibility of that education or training now this one is really vague because i mean a spouse could could technically say i want to be a doctor right how does the court view this because you know the time to acquire this may go over the duration of spousal support so i mean in your experience how how does the court weigh this part my experience is the court's gonna look a little at this like a parent that's it's let's call it a very prudent parent you know an example of a, a prudent parent uh, talking to an imprudent child would be the imprudent child comes to you and says, I want to get a, a degree in sociology and work at a museum. And it's going to take me eight years because I need to get my bachelor's and my master's. And then I, right. when I exit this program, I'm going to make about 45, 50 K a year. Judging to say, we're not going to f- give you spousal maintenance to fund that pursuit. Right. Okay? But I did have a client. Here's an example. I had a client. Mm. She was to me, one of the more brilliant, um, uh, divorce clients I've ever had. Uh-huh. She decided to go into a very unconventional career after her divorce. She'd been a stay-at-home mom. And she told me one day, she said, I'm going to be a welder. Mm-hmm. And I was a little surprised um, in, in a good way. I thought, cool. That's, I mean, there's a huge need for welders. And she had a job even lined up, but it was going to take her a year. She had to get her certification. Uh-huh. It was going to cost, I don't know, maybe like 7,500, 10K. That's the kind of plan where you, you tell it, you pitch it to a judge and say, look, this is not only a plan that it's pie in the sky. It, she can absolutely do this and it's not going to take forever and it's not going to cost a fortune. And the bigger part is it, it's going to lead to a true career. Sure. And so uh, the judge was happy to award her some spousal maintenance to help her get through that. That's reasonable though. A year is reasonable and under 10 K I, I can see a judge awarding that. The next one is duration of marriage, which obviously is, is easy. You just look at the date of marriage. Um, the next also is about the seeking spouse, right? The age, employment history, earning ability, and physical and emotional condition of the spouse seeking maintenance. Now, age really important because we do see some ageism uh, when it, in regards to looking for a new job at a certain age. It, it, it's harder to, to land some of these jobs. Um, employment history, pretty simple. Um, you know, you look at the resume and what they've done in the past, the earning ability is going to be based off what their professional experiences are. And then the physical and emotional condition of the spouse seeking maintenance. I mean, I would assume that the judge would use this requirement or consideration, I should say, based off, uh, their interaction with that party in court. Um, and the times they have engaged and um, observed the party's actions. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, let's just say you have a fault-based divorce and right. you've got an emotionally abused spouse that it maybe she's going to have some social adjustment issues getting back into the workforce. Sure. Um, you know, you talk about physical and emotional condition. You know, if you want to distill all these factors, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, if you want to distill all these factors, it's really just an attempt to give the judge a broad palette of color choices. Uh, like what what ways can I listen to a, a case that could be very different from any other case I ever hear and find a valid legal reason to say she or he should deserve spousal support? 
uh, in a way that is reasonable, right? Mm-hmm. All these factors, when you read them, they all have a sense of reasonableness to them to where you're glad they're there because, you know, even that one you just read off, the age, employment history, earning ability, and physical, emotional condition of a spouse, that's quite similar to some degree to one of the earlier factors, but it's just a way to like expand upon um, the the discretion that the court can have so that fair outcomes are reached. Yeah, that's what I, I would I would agree with that. I would echo that sentiment where it gives the court a sense of discretion based off a wide amount of considerations, right? And the next one, it, it goes into your point actually is how much does the the other spouse make, right? And and their earning ability, because there has to be a place where this money comes from. Um, if if you both are making 50000 a year, I, I don't think there's any judge that would award any type of spousal support. Um, the next one is acts by either spouse resulting in excessive or abnormal expenditures or destruction, concealment, or fraudulent disposition of the community property. Um, you know, we're really talking about waste here. Right? And quite frankly, I've seen this consideration employed where um, you've had a spouse that was running up credit uh, and credit on a, and expenses um, used on a extramarital f- affair. Is that same in, in your experiences with this consideration? Yeah, I've seen um, this factor it, rarely used, to be honest, because there's a, a way for the court to adjust the property division. Yes. Uh, but there also could be scenarios where the court feels like adjusting the property division doesn't get there enough. Let, let's let's think of an example where uh, spouse A makes 250K a year, um, spouse B is a homemaker, um, they just tend to have, over the course of their marriage, spent most of what they made. Uh, they have a marital estate of $100,000, which, of course, all their friends are probably shocked because they drive nice cars. And right. they, but they right. just spend everything they have, right? And they only have hundred k to show for all these years he's making two fifty k. Well, little does she come to find out it's really not even hundred k anymore. Now he's even down to fifty because he spent fifty k on his girlfriend. Okay, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, the court can find a way, though, regardless, to divide up what should have been hundred k. So she walks. She walks away with let's just call it. The judge gives her 60%, gives her 60K, he gets 40K. The judge can still look at that and go, after all that he put her through uh, and what he did, the best I can do is give her 60K. Like that just doesn't sound right. So the court can consider, look, I can make this right. Right. And so that's a scenario where the court could go, I'm going to increase. This is the court second by the apple here. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to find ways to to add to what property division could not get right. Right. I, I had a case. In fact, it reminds me of my case, uh, your, your, your anecdote there, because um, the marital property was basically a Cadillac and a $20,000 401k. Um, guy made about 200 she made nothing. Uh, she was looking for work uh, at the moment, but couldn't find anything. And the court employed this consideration in order to give her uh, spousal support. The next one is the contribution by one spouse to the education, training, or increased earning power of the other spouse. Now, this one kind of confuses me because the whole point, right? The whole point of spousal support may be to either support the seeking spouse while they're attaining education or training, you know, why, why duplicate it again in here? 
honestly, this is the one we can go ahead and just say they need to fix this because it makes no sense. I'll give an example exactly. of why it makes no sense. They're saying that if your spouse has, has contributed to your education training or increased earning power, then this should go against your spousal support. But what makes zero sense about that is if, for example, uh, spouse A uh, is is wanting ch- uh, spousal support and spouse B has during the marriage been helping pay for college tuition, whatever for spouse A, that's really what they're saying. Spouse B is helping pay for college tuition or training for spouse A. And after the divorce, spouse A wants spouse support. Well, that came from community funds. Yes. I mean, it's they treat it very much like spouse B was doing it out of the goodness of his or her heart. I yeah. mean, the reality is maybe they were, but it, it's coming out of both pockets. Yeah. So you, you don't get credit for supporting your spouse during the marriage. I mean, that's just what you're supposed to do. Perhaps separate property, though. But see, they don't say that. Yeah. And no. I find that very strange. Yeah. So we're going to just say we don't even know as practicing attorneys <laughs> what the hell that means, because I don't know. Uh, the property, the next one is the property brought to the marriage by either spouse. I mean, again, I mean, this is, you know, pretty self-explanatory. Next is the contribution of the spouse as a homemaker. This is kind of hard to measure, though. I mean, you would have to go based off their duties okay, but I don't know if you can single th- those duties out. And how would you value that? That that's that's well, a hard part about it. This gets really sensitive because what ordinarily happens, and I hate hearing it because I cringe when I hear it, is when I represent the spouse who's the homemaker and they want to debate the contribution of the spouse as a homemaker. Yes, they're usually very careful in debating it. Um, and ordinarily, the only debate that would happen would be at mediation because they'd be too scared to actually say what's on their mind in front of a judge. But they'll say stuff like, she was a terrible homemaker. The house is a wreck. Yes. Uh, she didn't make dinner. I made dinner. I cleaned the house. Right. And it, it's a little sensitive because sometimes that's true and sometimes it's actually not true. Yeah. So it, it, in some ways, they're almost asking for the parties to denigrate uh, one another as homemakers and I don't really see this as a big factor that's it's considered. I think this this homemaker concept plays more into the education, the employment skills, sure, the resume factors. Sure, yeah, this isn't yeah. this isn't really a resume factor, but I think ultimately it becomes a resume factor. <laughs> I would agree with you. I'm, I'm normally representing the homemaker, though, in my experience, Ed. Um, you know, she would would tell me that she did everything. Right. For the kids, she cooked, cleaned, woke up the kids, took them to the doctors and all of that. And that's and we should employ this consideration when asking for spousal support. Moving on, the next two we kind of touched on it already, right? Is is um the misconduct or fault in the marriage where which we went through last week and in the family violence part, right? The court can consider that in awarding spousal support. Now, Justin, there is a rebuttable presumption in the code and the presumption the court can presume that the spouse seeking maintenance has ex- exercised diligence in earning sufficient income to provide for a spouse's minimum reasonable needs or developing the necessary skills to provide for the spouse's minimum reasonable needs yeah i think it's important to recap a little bit here so we're now getting into the big de- defense side we were talking all about how you get it all right. You get it because you have uh, a lack of, of funds or property to meet your minimum reasonable needs. That be, could be because of disability. It could be because of a whole bunch of different factors we already covered. All right. Now the question is, are there ways to defend against that? And there are. 
the two most important ones are uh, one is the party earning sufficient income. We have slightly covered that. Um, we covered some thresholds already, right? Maybe whether it's three or four thousand in Williamson County, or it's four or five thousand plus in Travis County. The other one is, I think, the biggest defensive factor, which is, is the spouse um, developing uh, necessary skills to get to where they can earn sufficient income? So those those are two big defense factors I've seen. Yeah, you know what is is interesting though when you have, and we're not talking about the homemaker situation, but I think it comes where one spouse has worked part-time during the marriage and not necessarily full-time, but doesn't seek full-time work post-divorce or, or during the pendency of the divorce in order to support him or herself. And that's where you see this thing, right? Is like, well, you know, a reasonable person would attain more work or get more hours or whatever you have to do to make more money in, in order to be perceived by the court to have been doing your due diligence, right? And to to upkeep this presumption. Yeah, the the defense, and I, I slightly misspoke, the defense is you've got to be doing everything you can to make those threshold amounts or more. Yes. Or uh, be training or getting education to earn those amounts. And the question always becomes when I have a client seeking spousal maintenance, just point blank, what jobs have you been applying for recently? And when I hear this next response, I cringe. They'll say sometimes, oh, I'm planning on doing that. And I say, well, the plan needs to be today. Why? Because you don't want to leave any doubt in the court's mind right. that you're doing everything. Yes. Because what the other spouse is going to say, you can already script it. They're going to say she or he doesn't want to work. They want to sit around all day and watch TV and hang out and they don't want to work. Right. And the judge, of course will either believe that or disbelieve it, depending on what your client gets on the witness stand and says she's doing or right. he's doing. If she says or he says, I, every day I'm on Indeed and I'm applying for jobs. I apply for five jobs a day, 10 jobs a day. And I'm actually trying to take interviews. I'm not just applying and, and not pursuing. Because that's the other element too. Judges aren't stupid. They know that people sometimes will game this and right. they'll, they'll apply for jobs. But then the next follow-up question by opposing counsel is, how many interviews have you actually taken? Because realistically, someone's going to get an interview at some point. Right. How, when was the interview? What was the nature of the interview? Were you a finalist? Did you have a follow-up interview? Right. At some point, it just has to pass the smell test. Are you really trying to get a job? Or are you just doing it symbolically to, to pass the test? Right, right, right. You're just looking like you're trying, right? You know what? Let me ask you a question because I've had this come up in one of my cases. Actually, a few of my cases. What if you have a seeking spouse that is a commission-based earner and her professional, all of her professional career has been commission-based? I'm talking real estate, mortgages, right? Um, shoot, even car sales perhaps, right? And what do you do if business is down though? And they can show it, it's been this way for the past you know, year, year and a half. Well, I think at some point, if something working, you got to change. Yeah, right. <clears throat> and so 
you know, I'm, I'm a, a big advocate of having blunt conversations with my clients about even stuff that's not legal, which is, look, I want you to be successful after you get this divorce done. For the last two years, fortunately, your spouse has bolstered your ability to survive. Yes. But you've only been making X, Y, Z. And you say it's the market's down, the market's down. But we don't have any real indication that your particular segment is going to turn around. So what's your what's your plan B? And when they say they don't have one, that's when I really start shaking them. I go, we got to have a plan B. And I think that's what a court would want as well. Yeah, You can't just be stubborn uh, and, and ask for your spouse to pay for your stubbornness. Because right. that's what you're asking the judge to do. You're saying, point. you're saying, judge, make him pay for me being stubborn, inflexible, and I won't change my, my, my feathers. Right. You, you sometimes have to be willing to do that. That's actually a good point. All right, Justin, we went through the eligibility of chapter eight, went to the factors the court can consider, and we went to through the presumption that the court has uh, for spousal support. It begs two questions, right? How long and how much? Yep. So we get past the, we've gotten past first, second base, maybe even third base. Now we're really on our way home. And the question now is, is the judge is like, I'm going to give this person spousal support. I need to decide how much and how long. And those are the two big things. A client would sometimes get excited and go, all right, I think I've qualified for spousal uh, and, and they have these pie in the sky notions of how long it's going to be and how much I usually have to be, bring them down to earth a little bit because the code lays out some, what I would consider ceilings that are a little bit unrealistic in my experience. Right. Um, uh, so the code tells us this about how much and how long they only give us limits. They don't give you any minimums. Right. So we know it could be zero. It could be, uh, you know, up to the limits. What are the limits for it depends on the the, dur- the duration of the marriage will dictate how long the sure. limit could be. Sure. So if, uh, and maybe you want to run through those real yeah, quick. Yeah, I will. So a, a court, and, and it's funny you say it that way because the very first line, a court may not order already already uh, indicates that this is the, the top of it, right? And, and not necessarily the minimum, but a court may not order maintenance that remains in effect for more than five years after the date of the order if the spouses were married to each other for less than 10 years and the eligibility of the spouse for whom maintenance is ordered is established under. And this section that is in the code is actually the family violence section that we went through at the very beginning, right? Whether or not there was a, a family violence or whether it met the requirements, right, of, of the that section itself. Yeah. So in other words, domestic violence limits it to five years. That's right. the sh- simplest way to put it. Right. Then you go... uh if the spouses were married at least 10 years, then what? Yeah. So at least 10 years, but not more than 20. Uh, this again is, is limited to a, a five year. This is a cap at five years. So you have two, you have two fire caps. One is if you had the domestic violence and if you're married for at least 10 years. Okay. Now you start moving a little bit up to two more years. So you got seven years total. If you're married for more than 20 years, but not 30. And then again, you, you get another bump up to 10 years uh, if you're married for at least 30 years. Now, in your experience, you already kind of touched on this, but are the courts uh, likely to, to hit this ceiling, if you will, um, that is reflected in the code for duration of spousal support? My experience is vast majority of the time, no. They don't come anywhere near the ceiling. And whenever, uh, you know, I have savvy clients, they'll... 
they'll do their research before they even have a consult or even after the consult, they'll you know do some research because this is important. They know that they need it and they want to know how much they could get. And when they look at the code, they see, you know, they see this five year, seven year, 10 year, and they start getting some calm over them because they're like, right. this gives me runway, yes. right? This is great. Yes. Um, but I have to bring them back down to earth because it, and this is not my choice. This is me just interacting with courts. This is my experience. My experience is rarely do you even get half of the duration of the ceiling. And I mean, even rarely do you get half of the ceiling. Oftentimes you'll get uh, like a very typical spousal maintenance order is of the one year to maybe two year variety. That's a very typical one. Um, It doesn't mean that you're doomed. It just means that if we're going to get the judge beyond a typical one to maybe 18 month or two year variety spousal maintenance order, we've really got to present a super well-packaged case on the other factors and got to really bring it to the judge and shake the judge a little bit and make them feel like this is an outlier. Yeah, I agree. And you know what? It's also supported by the court, uh, the code, the, the next section itself says a court shall, which is obligatory, limit the duration of, main, of a maintenance order to the shortest reasonable period that allows a spouse seeking maintenance to earn sufficient income or to provide for the spouse's minimum reasonable needs. Right. So it gives them an out. Uh, even though the ceilings are listed first. Um, yep. You know, the next part of that is going to be, well, Justin, we got the duration down. How much do I get in spouse? Yeah. Uh, so again, we're talking experience here. Um, but before we jump to, to experience, uh, the, the code also provides, again, ceilings. They say it's going to have to be the lesser of 5000 a month or 20% of the spouse's uh, average monthly gross income. So we know it's not going to be more than 5,000 a month and we know it's going to be, uh, you know, or under 20% of the spouse's average gross monthly income. But even then my experience is it's typically less than that. Um, uh, I have rarely ever had a client. I, I think I've had maybe a couple clients ever hit the 5,000 mark, but it was, I, it, none come to recent memory. It's been a very long time. I haven't had one that the, reached to 5,000. The, the, the most common would be a spousal support award that just makes the recipient uncomfortable. Like if I get in the judge's head, they don't say this, but I really feel that the judge is trying to make the recipient spouse a little uncomfortable. Meaning if they gave them everything they wanted dollar for dollar to make their minimum reasonable needs, then they wouldn't go out, look for a job. They wouldn't work on the resume. They wouldn't work on yeah, their training it, skills. Yeah, it doesn't incentivize them to to, right. to get a job or uh, get better skills, you know? That's right. And so uh, when when I think judges are, have that mentality, you have to fight the same battle. You just have to make, uh, if you're trying to get your client spousal support at the highest amount, you just really have to emphasize that your client is not the kind of person that's sitting around uh, that she's doing here, she is doing everything they can to get themselves back on their feet, but that it's not realistic to expect them to get on their feet with 1500 a month or something of that sort. And, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my experience on numbers. Um, I, I said that oftentimes spousal support is in the one to 18 month to two year range. Amount wise, um, it's not uncommon for a spousal support award to be in the 1000, 1500, $2,000 range. Um, you know, again, we're talking not specifically about what the the paying spouse makes, but I'm just assuming that this paying spouse is not making, you know, 500K a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted, if your your paying spouse is going to be making 500, you know, three, four, 500K a year, 
you're going to get that spousal support number bumped up higher. Yeah. But if you're talking about a 100 to 150K or even 80K, somewhere in, let's call it the white collar, mid-level range, right. salaried employee range, right. um, it's not going to be 5,000 a month. It's going to probably be in that, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 range. And it's probably going to be between the one to two year range uh, on the high end. And your, and your hope is that you just have a good lawyer like myself for you to get that the judge shaken a little bit to go higher. You know, I had a case recently where my client hired me after the temporary orders and in the temporary orders, which is done by another attorney, um, he was he was obligated to pay spousal support in the form of the mortgage for the marital home, but he but she got exclusive use of the marital home, right? So he's paying for her to live in the home. Um the mortgage was forty two hundred dollars. He only makes, uh, I believe it's $7,200. So it was more than 50% of his um, his income. Now, these, these rules should apply to, to, to interim spouse support as well. Um, but it doesn't. Right. Yeah. Do you want to touch on this for a bit? Because I was appalled when I saw this. That's why. It's a really good point. We, we, we're not talking today uh, so far until just now about temporary spousal support. Yes. Or temporary support or family support. Judges call it a number of things because they've got discretion to call it whatever the hell they want. Exactly. Right? Really, what we're talking about is in the middle of a case, there can be a support payment. That has nothing to do with these factors. Yes. And it's purely in the judge's discretion. And sometimes it works out the right way because the judge is not hamstrung by any of these factors. But sometimes, like the example you gave, the judge can get really punitive. And like I've got a case right now. My client, he's borrowed from parents. He's sold everything he owns pretty much. He's had to take loans. He's just... The, the court just punished him with a temporary spouse support award, right. knowing that the code doesn't really give them much restrictions on temporary right. support. But, you know, that's that's a different animal. And uh, uh, that's something that maybe for another episode, but that's just something that um, I want to bring the, dis- the West. Yeah, I want to bring the distinction, though, because we're really talking about final dissolution or final orders, I should say. That's right. And there's no it's a wild west, as you put it, where. You know, you're in temporary orders. Um, well, look, we know how much we can get now. We know how long we can get it. And based off your experience, it sounds like it, it's it's not going to be the ceiling, uh, given the facts, though, given the correct facts. Now, if we are obligated to pay spouse support, how do we how do we get rid of this thing? Otherwise known as termination of spouse support. Right. And the code says the obligation to pay future maintenance terminates on the death of either party, all right, so the spouse seeking or the spouse paying, or on the remarriage of the obligee, which is, in our terminology today, the spouse seeking maintenance. Well, cohabitation will get you there, too. Right. So, uh, you know, you can have your spouse support terminated, just like you said, cohabitation with someone. Uh, that's not one night. Sometimes they'll try to trick them up on that. Well, you have a boyfriend or girlfriend. You spent the night with, oh, you cohabitate. No, that's not going to get you there. It needs to be some kind of actual living situation that's permanent. Right. Uh, remarriage will get you there to terminate the spousal support. And of course, a good old fashioned death will, will, <laughs> will do the trick. Uh, but 
I'll throw one more uh, element in there that I think it's important for people to know is spouse support can theoretically be modified. Um, now it's not common. Um, mm-hmm. It would take very significant evidence to show why the modification should happen. The most common scenario is I'll have a client call me. They're making 250K. They were laid off uh, and they, they're on, on the hook for 3000 a month spousal. Unfortunately, it's so hard to get it modified, even if your client now makes zero, because the court's going to say, you probably came away with some property in the divorce. You need to, you need to pay your spouse out of that. Uh, number two, you're probably going to be getting some temporary uh, unemployment benefits. You got to pay her out of that. Number three, I don't have sympathy on you because you probably have the ability to borrow money. You need to pay it out of that. Or the, the other one, I am doubtful that you lost your job for good faith reasons. I think you're just trying to screw your spouse out of spousal. And then once, once I terminate the spousal, you're going to find a great job. And somewhat that's the combination of the fifth factor in my mind, which is I think you can get another job soon and you're just going to try and sandbag me so that I don't. Until I modify. Until I modify. That's right. right. So my experience is you can modify um, long-term spousal support. It's just very hard. Uh, and it's not as easy as clients think. Right. Well, episode four, we did it, man. Pay me my money. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, all our episodes we record on Friday. We're dropping it on Saturday. Tune in. Um, leave us a review. I mean, uh, tell us how much you like Justin's voice and um, yeah. <laughs> all of the content he's given you. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks. <laughs>